Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Good evening and welcome to the magnificent City Recital Hall uh, on this election eve here in Sydney town. I am Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival, Michael Williams, and I'm thrilled to be here with you all for a number of reasons. Not least that it's been a funny couple of years. Sydney Writers Festival has been going for 25 years and it is a proudly international event, one that engages with the best of literature and ideas and writing from all around the world. But obviously for the past couple of years that's been a slightly more constrained exercise. Generally, what that's meant is an enormous screen above the stage uh, and then me running out to apologise for technical difficulties, which is, I think you'll all agree, an absolute treat. Um, But, you know, for us it was also this really great thing because it reminded us of what was at the heart of the festival, which was celebrating extraordinary local voices. And being an international festival isn't about diminishing those local voices or putting them second to international voices. It's about recognising that our writers have peers, they have colleagues and they have friends all around the writing world. And it's those relationships, those interplays that are at the heart of what we do when it comes to the relationship between local voices and international voices. This session we're about to see epitomises that idea. We were so thrilled this year to be able to return to having two in-person international guests. Uh, And they are both here tonight at City Recital Hall. The first of those two guests is last year's Booker Prize winner, the extraordinary Damon Galga, one of the most remarkable writers working today. Damon appears, yes, big round of applause. (laughs) Damon appears at Sydney Writers Festival in person this year in part thanks to the phenomenal support of the extraordinary Rosemary Block. Big round of applause for Rosie. The generosity and imagination of supporters like Rosie make the Sydney Writers' Festival possible and we couldn't be any more grateful. But not only are we thrilled to have Damon here, but to have him interviewed by another of the world's greatest writers of our time, Michelle de Kretzer, who is, as I mentioned before, a friend, a colleague, a peer of Damon Galgut. Please welcome these two extraordinary writers. for that lovely welcome. Um, I'm going to begin with what the fabulous Evelyn Araluen calls an acknowledgement of country. I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on land stolen from the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's their country, they were its first storytellers, they've never ceded sovereignty. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and offer a particularly warm welcome to any First Nations people here tonight. Um, So as far as this event goes, it's the usual conversation format that you're all very familiar with. Damon and I will be nattering for about um, 50 minutes, and then I'll open it up to your questions, after which Damon um, has kindly agreed to um, sign books And somewhere in this wonderful building, I'm sure more knowledgeable people will lead you there when the time comes. 
So, it's my joy and privilege to be talking today with Damon Galgert, one of a handful of writers whose new books I look forward to as to the coming of spring. Damon was born in Pretoria and now lives in Cape Town. He's published nine works of fiction, the first when he was 17. His most recent novel, The Promise, won the 2021 Man Booker Prize and will be the focus of our conversation. Damon's novels have attracted a long, long list of honours, including two Booker shortlistings, For the Good Doctor and In a Strange Room. His books are profound, unsettling and riveting, written in prose that has the bright clarity of a weapon. They're grounded in precisely rendered everyday detail, but they also have a timeless, fable-like quality. They hover between and play with genres and modes. They're attentive to the natural world and to the lives of non-human animals. They scrutinize power. Who has it? Who hasn't? Its uses and abuses. They're concerned with history, particularly the history of modern South Africa, embodying that large theme in relations between brilliantly drawn characters. History happens between people in Damon's work, and the promise is exemplary in that regard. The promise tells the story of the Swartz, a white South African family, over three decades, starting in 1985. At its core is a promise one of the family has made to hand over some property to their black servant. It's a wise, grand, and disquieting book. It's also formally inventive. Literature lives in sentences, and in this novel, sentences behave in unconventional and thrilling ways. The time is uncertain, um, and a Booker winner is in demand across the world. And so we're so lucky to have Damon here in Sydney. Please give him another warm welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So, Damon, you know, I said this was a story of a family, and it is, but it seems to me that it is also the story of modern South Africa. And so my question is that, you know, even before you began, when you were just thinking about this book, did you want, did you set out to write the story of a family or the story of a nation um, or both? Or did that only happen in, you know, when you started writing? Um, you know, the initial idea for the book, um, I don't want to bore anyone because I've trotted this out numerous times, it, it came from a conversation with a friend of mine who happens to be the last surviving member of his family. And he was telling me one semi-drunken afternoon um, about the four family funerals that he'd attended. Um, and although it sounds unlikely, he was being very, very funny. Um, I guess because his attention was not on the person being buried, but on the family and um, the antics of the living and very often the antics of a dysfunctional family can be amusing and very revealing. 
yeah. about human behavior. So my initial attraction to the idea um, was to, you know, this what felt like an unusual way to relate a family story. Um, and I didn't, in the beginning, think much beyond that. It came as a secondary and later realization that if I sort of widened the focus just a little bit, um, that I could show more than just the life and progress of this family, but something of the life and progress of the country that they belong to, and that I belong to too. But yes, um, I, I was not initially setting out to deal with you know, national history. I was much more concerned with a personal history. Mm -hmm. I think you should have called it Four Funerals and No Wedding. <laughs> just, you know, just putting it out there. <laughs> well, the title um, was the last thing to arrive. Um, and of course, you know, the title of that particular movie kept floating through my mind and I, <laughs> I knew that unkind people would bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such a great title. I mean, it sort of encompasses everything. But, you know... Um, I'm going to be running the line that this book is um, different in interesting ways from your previous books set in South Africa. And one of them is that, you know, in, in those earlier books, of course there's South African history, South African politics is, are present, but they're, and they're alluded to, but they mostly kind of simmer behind the characters' lives or underneath. Sometimes something happens and, you know, politics intervenes. But it's kind of backgrounded. Um, but here, I mean, from the title, which is about land ownership, which is so fundamental, um, what, what was it that, you know, made you decide this time you were going to write really about South Africa? You know, up front. Um, I mean, it, as you know, Michelle, books don't arrive as a complete package. They sort of develop like, a, you know, one of those photographs in a yeah. bath of whatever the chemicals are. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, I mean, I do think the family in some way shows the nation. Yeah. Um, and I was drawn to the idea of this family as being in some way representative of white South Africa, the white South Africa that I know and have grown up in. Um, but I, I resist the, the idea of political writing, and you won't find the name of a single political party in this book. Mm -hmm. There's no ostensibly political discussion, ideological jostling, or, any, or anything like that. Um, what I rather chose to do was, um, you know, once I decided to tell the story through the device of the four funerals, I realized that if you spaced the funerals out, you could place them in different decades with a different president in power. Hmm. And it's really kind of evident about South Africa that each of the last three, four decades has had a different reigning spirit, a different sort of ethos to it. Mm -hmm. So I, I was trying really to conjure the feeling of the time rather than, you know, dissect the politics of the time. Sure, sure. And you just, you do do that beautifully um, through those pivotal moments and how they are different. You know, the sort of hopefulness of the 
um, early 90s and then the, well, the difficulties um, of the Zuma era, for instance. Um, That's nicely and euphemistically <laughs> put. Um, well, I, you know, I, I, but I, I still think that... Um, I mean, I always remember this line in The Good Doctor where you say life in South Africa is marked by brutality and violence. Not a happy line. And um, I think those earlier novels for me... Even that they seem to end on a much bleaker, bleaker note, and here, not so much. Well, I mean, I'm gratified, but also surprised that you feel that way, because a number of commentators have, you know, harped on how bleak they find the book. <laughs> um, no, just the ending. We're talking the ending. Right. Well. You know, I, I, I had no axe to grind, no particular agenda to lay out um, when I started writing the book, but it is unavoidably true that if you do try to evoke the spirit of these different decades, that the trajectory that's being portrayed is a downward one. You know, mm. South Africa is not in a happy place right now. No. So I guess if there's a, a more hopeful note at the end, it's much more centered on the last surviving member of this family, the, the person yeah. who represents, to whatever degree, you know, um, a moral impulse um, at the centre of this otherwise rather amoral and self-interested group of people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it is definitely caught up with Amor, um, that uh, the, the youngest member of the family. Um, but, you know, there is also a drought breaks, rain comes, it's I know you say in the novel, oh, that's just a cheap redemptive trick that novelists use. Nevertheless, as a reader who always falls for cheap redemptive tricks, <laughs> I felt, you know, at that moment, really kind of, oh, it was, it was, one, it was a wonderful sort of release. And, um, and it is caught up with, with Amour. So let's, let's talk about the characters. And that, you see, I think, to me, is another difference from your earlier South African books, which, when I think about them, I mean, they're quite different from each other, but there is this kind of recurring um, trope, I, su I suppose, of um, two men who are locked in some kind of um, struggle over power, and that power might be, it might be um, psychological, it might be professional, it might be um, erotic. Um, they pursue each other, sometimes literally, across the landscape. Um, they, I mean, you're not, you have a novel called The Quarry. You know, they, they hunt each other. They, they can be murderer and victim. They can be, um, you know, um, assassin and... Um, would-be victim, they're often kind of doubles in a strange way. You know, they get mistaken for each other, they wear each other's clothes. Anyway, all of that to say, they're very powerfully masculinist novels. And here, here, for the first time in your fiction, I find that women are pivotal to this narrative. I, I think it's a fair comment. I mean, my feeling about my earlier work was um, whatever its merits or lacks, 
um, that it was very, very tightly focused. I mean, a lot of it's in the first person, even when it isn't, like the book about E.M. Forster. It's so, it's so closely focused on him that it might as well be in the first person. Yeah. And my impulse with this was to break out of that and, yeah. and, and to, you know, widen the field um, as wide as the nation, I guess. Um, mm. There are very few advantages to getting older, Michelle, but one of them mm -hmm. is that you, you care much less about what other people think of you. And there's an element to this book of abandon, I mean, at least yeah, yeah. for me in the, in, in the writing, where I decided I'm going to succumb to my South African identity, I'm going to let all the ugly bits hang out, and I'm not going to <laughs> translate South Africa, as it were, to the rest of the world. I'm going to speak from South Africa, I'm going to speak from the center of my own life. Um, to the extent of, you know, using South African colloquialisms, even some Afrikaans yeah. phrases, and I thought I would just leave it to the reader to figure stuff out. And to my great pleasure, that seems to have taken place. Yes, indeed. Um, so let's go back to Amor. There's a weighted name, if ever there was one. Um, you said that she was the moral, the only person with a sort of moral uh, impulse. Can you talk a little bit about her more? Yeah. Um, incidentally, um, the origin of her name was, came from a not so moral place. I, I have a little <laughs> notebook where I sort of jot down things that strike me, and there was a newspaper article years and years ago about uh, a woman whose name was Amor Swart, and I'm sure there are a few South Africans here, but uh, it translates literally as love black. Um, and my working title for the book was Dark Love, which was an allusion to Amor, but no one got it, so we had to change the title. <laughs> um, but in fact, when I started to create the Swart family, they turned out to be such a sort of carnival of grotesques that I realized I had, to, I had to sort of counterbalance them with at least one person who had a, you know, a moral tendency, and it, yeah. it turned out to be her. She's, she's the youngest daughter of the family. Everybody else is acting out of self-interest, greed, uh, to whatever degree. Um, Amor is the one person who seems set apart from that at a slight angle to her family, at a slight angle to the nation. Um, there's also... A you know, I, I have a theory about the novel, right, which, which is entirely, <laughs> entirely open to question, which is that it developed as a, as a kind of distraction for the middle classes and as such was intended to reflect middle class values back to the reader. So sort of hard-baked into the idea of the novel is also an idea of the world being set to rights whenever it ruptures. Mm, so yeah. books are meant to comfort and console you, um, and there are various devices. I mean, the very fact that a book has a shape and a resolution is reassuring, um, whereas the real world very often doesn't provide that sort of resolution. So I like to push novels as close to the real world as I, as I possibly can. Um, and the real world is not often guided by moral impulses. No. So I, I guess I had a, a, an innate resistance to depicting Amor, even though she is the moral center of the book, as too saintly and too, um, too much of an example. So although she is the one person who feels compelled 
to try and push the family to do the right thing. I also wanted her motives to be slightly open to question. So, you know, she was struck by lightning um, when she was six years old and various other members of the family um, think of her as damaged or defective and, and they think of her moral impulses as a symptom of yeah. her damage. Um, but I wanted to leave that as a, a little bit of an open question. Perhaps she does act in this way because she's not the same as other people, you know? I, I, I mistrust those... Um, sort of blazing moral examples that are planted there as a signpost for the rest of us to follow. Where are these people in real life? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, interesting because I spent most of the novel really wanting to shake Amor. Mm. She kind of really annoyed me for most of the time because I kept thinking, why don't you make that phone call? Why don't you write that letter? Why don't you, why are you not on your family's back, like, Okay, not when she's a child, but, you know, as she grows older. I mean, she just sort of removes herself from the situation. And then once every 10 years, she remembers that this promise was made. No, well, exactly. I mean, I, you put your finger on it because um, if she had been a forceful personality who demanded that the right thing be done, um, she would be one of those blazing moral examples and my yeah. book would be a lot shorter. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there was that sort of narrative need to... Uh, well, it's part of it, it absolutely. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, oh, well, because I just remember that bit towards the end, um, in the last section, where you say, you address the reader, as you do many times in this novel, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but you say, um, you know, why have... You know, you, you have just not thought about... Um, um, the, the, the promise, have you? And it's, uh, you're wondering why it hasn't been mentioned. It's because you didn't think about it. And I thought, but Damon, I have thought of nothing else. I've been so anxious throughout this novel about, you know, will this, will this house come to, to Salome? Um, I... And so I think that's why I found when I talk about that sort of feeling of relief at the end, release with the rain and so on, was the fact that Amor does make the reparative gesture, uh, even if it comes very late in the day, perhaps too late. And, you know, also, Amor, you know, loving kindness is one thing, it's lovely, but backed up by cold, hard cash, it's, like, fantastic, okay? <laughs> so I, it was such relief. Um, and I do think it's a novel of great cumulative power. So, you know, you build and build and build to that last wonderful scene with Amor. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would hope so. Um, it's true, I mean, if Amor had done, you know, there's the right thing and then there's the right, right thing. Mm -hmm. If she'd done the right, right thing and insisted from the beginning that her, you know, her family follow through, deliver on this promise, which incidentally is, um, for those who may not know the novel, um, Amor believes, as a young child, that she's overheard a conversation between her dying mother and her father in which her mother asks her father to give the broken-down house and the useless piece of land on which it stands to the black lady, Salome, who has looked after her, Amor's mother, through her last illness. And basically, the family in time-honored South African fashion has danced 
around and around this promise and found ways not to deliver. And, you know, the release that Michelle is referring to is, you know, the final delivery on this promise, which is far from satisfying, I yeah. think, because um, by, the, by the end of the novel, even that piece of land um, has other claims on it, which, mm. again seems to me more in keeping with the way the world actually works. Yeah, but the money's good, right? That's, that's I keep coming, well, follow the money, you know. It's... Well, fair enough, except that, you know, all of this, all of this fire and fury is about a land. piece of land that is not really worth anything. Yeah. You know, it, it would have been a different sort of book if this was an incredibly valuable piece of land, an important mm. house, but it actually isn't. Mm. You can't do anything with it. And yet, this family will not give it up. Yeah. And that strikes me also as a peculiarly South African thing. What you have, you don't let go of. Yeah, and um, it's not Salome, is it? You pronounced it differently. You, the classical pronunciation would be Salome, but, you know, in South Africa we like to stomp our vowels flat. Okay. And um, it's also a kind of tribute to, um, well... Um, it's, it's, it's a sort of staple of South African households that um, there's a black nanny that, you know, does all kinds of domestic work, but amongst the various tasks expected is very often that she would look after the white children. And I had a black nanny when I was very small, and her name was Salome, and um, in many ways she was a second mother to me. And um, it's one of those... Oh, I, I, I don't even know what adjectives to use. One of those very perverse South African intimacies, really, mm. um, whereby in the middle of this terribly warped system, um, there's a real affection and a real bond and a real connection, which has, you know, ultimately no substance, but that matters terribly mm. while it's playing out. So, yeah, um, it was a kind of a tribute to... To her wherever she may be if she's even alive because it's also part of the South African tradition that these bonds are swept away and you know those connections are lost. Well you do evoke that very beautifully in the book um, you know talking about Sal Salome. You can call her Salome it's okay. <laughs> Salome um, and I mean I, you know she's the other character I want to talk about because um, she is sort of riveting, I thought, you know, really compelling um, presence, and yet she's a very minor character. Um, and she is silent for most of the novel. What is the meaning of that silence? Yeah, I made that decision almost casually early, early on, um, and I didn't realise it was going to be quite as controversial as it seems to have been. Um, you call her a minor character, but yes, she's minor but central, if, yeah. we, can, if we can put it that way. I mean, she sits right at the she's heart of the... She's pivotal, yeah. but amazing for someone who doesn't appear very much. Yeah, although if you were a South African, you would probably um, have mentally put her into a lot of those scenes because she's the sort of figure who would be in the background dusting the furniture, sweeping the floor, but would not be interacted with. So her presence is substantial but silent. And I wanted to convey something of that by 
not going into her inner world in the same way that I have done with the other characters. I mean, I took the decision, basically, that I would not travel into the interior lives of the black characters further than the surrounding white characters are likely to perceive them, which is to say, not very far at all. Um, this wasn't to make my life easier, it was actually to make a problem out of it, or at least that was my hope. In other words, I, I, I wanted readers like you to, to come to the end of the book and think to themselves, why is this central character an unexplored space? She sits there like a question without an answer. Mm -hmm. And in a certain sense, it's making a real life problem into a literary problem. Somebody like Salome, and there are millions of people like her in South Africa, you will encounter them every day on the street, probably from a rural background, probably not with a great education, whose work is, you know, menial, precisely to serve a white family. We're, you know, nearly 30 years into democracy, and such a person still has no voice, no agency, no presence, really, in South mm. African society. Mm. It's a problem in the real world, and I, I wanted people to feel that problem in the book. Again, to come back to my theory of the novel, one of the consolations that novels often provide is the, the sense of a false resolution. In other words, if I'd, if I'd given Salome her literary dues and explored her inner world, you might come to the end of the book and feel, oh, well, you know, everybody's on an equal basis here and this problem mm -hmm. is resolved and we, can, mm -hmm. we mm. can close the book and we can close the problem. Mm. But what I would hope is that people would be bothered by that and carry it around with them even after they finish the book because there is still, you know, there is the possibility that in some way, mentally, spiritually, that people might want to find that answer for themselves. And you do show that, I think, in the book through the difference between um, uh, Salome and her son, uh, Lucas, who is rather more vocal and um, who refuses to um, be silent. He refuses to express gratitude. Um, so do you think that there is this very marked difference between generations? So, Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, Lucas, Salome's son, um, speaks in a voice of great rage towards the end of the book, and what he's expressing is pretty much the voice of a new generation in South Africa. You, you would, I don't know how much of this has played out in the media in Australia, but there, there have been waves of student and, well, it's not just students, but, but protest from a new, younger generation about um, the lack of change in South Africa. And, you know, the, these protests have been very, very angry. And this is a generation that did not grow up under apartheid. But it's a generation that recognizes that the framework that apartheid set up has not changed. So, I mean, to put it simply, political power was handed over in the 90s in South Africa, but economic power was not. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that... Um, economic power trumps everything. In other words, if you have no access to money, you also have no access to any means um, of transforming your, your life or your position. Yeah. So, yeah, all the laws have changed, but mm. those 
stratifications and divisions that apartheid set up are still very much evident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the novel just makes that quite clear, really, sort of beautifully, subtly. So, um, let's talk a little bit about Anton, because he's the um, he's the only son, and he's the novel's portrait of an artist. Um, not a very successful <laughs> artist um, who's writing a novel that um, is, is never even finished and just disintegrates into um, a mass of, of jottings. I mean, d did you feel that this was... Um, I mean, was this a kind of allegory about... Um, the failure of South African writers to adequately represent the kinds of issues that you have been just talking about? Mm, not consciously so, no. Um, <laughs> You're laughing, though, which makes me think guilty as charged. No, no. <laughs> Look. Um, you'll notice I've struck a defensive posture. <laughs> I am... Um, you know, for me, every book has to have a kind of buried um, theme or, or subject, um, quite separate from the more overt surface ones. Um, and for me, this, this book has as its buried subject time and the passage of time, what, yeah. it, what it does to individuals, what it does to a nation. Um, and part of the point of it is, I mean, Anton is the, the eldest son, more or less my contemporary. In the first section of the book, which is set in the 1980s, in the last days of apartheid, there's a sequence where Anton, sitting on the roof of the house, kind of thinks about the future, and, and he thinks, he, he feels that he's, I forget my own phrasing, but that he's, he's born to, you know, write poems and lead yeah. nations, and there's a phrase that says um, that he wants to eat the world. Yeah. Now, that kind of represents the promise that mm. apartheid held out to white men like me. Yeah. Without any effort on my part, if apartheid had stayed in place, I would have stepped into the shoes of power, the world would have been held out to me on a platter. Um, that's not the case any longer. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the novel traces various transformations and declines, but the, the decline of that promise in Anton's life is, is very, very central. So, you know, he's somebody far from writing poems or leading nations, settles for his one last surviving ambition, which is to write a novel, and not even that can he complete. Mm. But like many of us, um, I sort of conceived of Anton's novel as being a sort of idealized version of his own life. Um, not even that, again, yeah. can he complete. So. Um, you know, you'll have yeah. noticed, I guess, that the structure of his book mirrors in an yeah. ironic way the structure of my own book. Um, not exactly, but in a much mm. more sort of idealized way. Mm. But I um, was not trying to say anything too personal in that. It was meant to be a kind of a general observation. But he does make, he does make a brilliant and um, timeless contribution to literature because one of his you know, jottings, one of his notes to himself, block capitals, is kill all the wizards, 
which, I mean, is a, is a note that every writer should have on their laptop, right? Do not have any wizards in your novel. Kill all the wizards. So I think Anton, you know, he does, he does have a very um, Well, incidentally, important... <laughs> uh, if I may pick up on that, I mean, it's not a central point, but it's, a, a, it's certainly an interesting one, at least, at least for me. I mean, he makes many marginal notes, and, and a lot of those were the sorts of doubts I was having while I was writing the book, such as is this a farm novel or a family yeah. saga? Is this a tragedy or a comedy? I, I, I sort of built it into Anton's book too. But that note, um, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of uh, two confronting quotes. The one comes from Conrad, uh, Heart of Darkness, exterminate all the brutes. Yeah. The other, kill the wizards, is actually, um, you know, most South Africans would know that phrase because it, it, it was taught to us year after year. Um, in history class, um, the Zulu chieftain Dingaan entertained or received a party of white fur trekkers or, or pioneers who came to him to do some deal, and, and he um, had set up an ambush for them. Um, and the moment of unleashing the ambush, which meant that they were all killed, was um, in Zulu. Not, not in English, but the instruction was kill the wizards. So essentially, with that sort of uh, conf confrontation, verbal confrontation between those two quotes, uh, I guess I was setting two genocidal visions against each other, which sit at the very extremes of racial life in South Africa. Okay, I'm still going to take it as personal advice, that, you know, <laughs> do not introduce any wizards. Um, <laughs> let's, let's talk, since we've been talking about character, let's talk a bit more about craft um, and that wonderful iron structure of, you know, the four um, funerals, which, you know, could almost be the four acts of a play. And I know that you studied drama at uni and um, have written for the stage. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about um, what writing for the stage might have taught you about writing fiction? I'm always slightly embarrassed when I'm described as a playwright because it's literally been decades since I wrote a play and I, I don't think of myself as a very good playwright, which is why I gave it up. <laughs> but it did leave a lingering, well, several lingering traces, I guess. Um, it, was, it was instructive to me to learn about dialogue, about, you know, being able to visualize a scene, and I think some of those qualities have, um, you know, followed me into my prose. But um, yes, part of the appeal of the structure was indeed um, essentially theatrical. I like, I like the idea that, that you know, it's, it's like a curtain goes up and you see a particular drama play out over two, three days, however long it takes to get the funeral done. And then the curtain drops, and the next time it rises, you're in a different decade, and this family and everyone in it is 10, 9, 8 years older. Yeah. Um, but that nothing is specifically explained, that the line through is not followed, which means the reader has to fill in that blank. And that's pleasing to me. But that is essentially um, a theatrical approach. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, you just... And you do that not only between the acts, as it were, but...
but also, you know, um, from one paragraph to another. It might be someone says, oh, you know, we'll be meeting the family lawyer tomorrow. Next paragraph, they are meeting the family lawyer, whereas, you know, most writers would say either leave a blank line or, you know, say, so the next afternoon or whatever, and, you know, you're all killer, no filler. You know, you're just <laughs> there. We, you take us, you put us in there. It's fantastic, you know, makes makes everyone else's work seem sort of bloated. You just, you know. Um, so, fantastic is such a, such, a, such a great device. I intend to steal it, naturally. Um, Could I say something about that? Well, you're going to forbid me to steal it. No, no, be my guest. Um, just that that approach, um, well, perhaps you don't want to get into that, but the, voices, uh, the voice of the book... Um, is what makes those sort of transitions possible. Yeah. And that voice um, was not part of the book from the outset. I mean, I think my mm -hmm. approach was far more, you know, creaky and old-fashioned initially. Mm -hmm. But I was diverted from the writing of the book into doing a couple of drafts of a screenplay um, early on. And returning to the book, I suddenly saw a way to transplant the logic of the cinematic approach onto prose. And that is, I mean, if you think about it, the way cinema works. You, sure. you, you move instantly from one scene to the next, and you know, the, the logic of that transition is evident on the screen. It's not always so evident on the page, but you know, those kind of um, leaps are very much part of the language of the book. And I'm glad you like it and want to adopt it, but it, you know, it's been baffling to some people, so... Pay them no heed. I don't. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, well, that leads very naturally into my next question, which is about your wonderful, amazing sentences with the several different shifts of perspective. And I thought that just to illustrate what um, I'm getting at, I mean, it seems very filmic to me, and... Um, I thought if you wouldn't mind just reading a, a very short passage to show how point of view shifts between sentences. Sure. Lucas says goodbye to Andila and takes the footpath to the Lombard house, where I live, a crooked little building, something out of true at its center. Three rooms, concrete floor, broken windows, two steps up to the front door, cross the threshold. Hello? Your own voice coming back at you. His mother is not at home. Thank you. Um, so just within, you know, sort of that much on the page, we have Lucas, third person, seen externally. Then we have Lucas, first person, I. Then we have Lucas, second person, you, and then we go back to the third person, which is, you know, it's just fantastic. This is like, you know, cubism on, on, the, on the page. You know, it's true, you know, it's Le Demoiselle d'Avignon in, in prose. Um, and so, so was that film as well, I, I imagine, yeah. So talk about that. Well, it came out of the, exactly that realization that um, one, one could narrate the book in the same way that a camera narrates a movie. That is to say, you can cut instantly 
from one point of view to another. Um, and that might be the point of view of a particular character, but it might also be the point of view of an external narrator. And the external narrator's viewpoint might be a wide shot from very far back, mm -hmm. but it might also be you know, very, very mm -hmm. close up. And I realized, or at least I established rules for myself, that um, if, if that narrative voice approached very, very close to a particular character that at times it could as it were, fall into the character and into a first-person voice. Yeah. There's an example of it there. Yeah. Um, and the sort of counterbalancing extreme, if you like, um, is a very, very long shot where there's a certain coldness and cruelty even, as one of my editors accused me, um, almost inhuman detachment from, from that. I mean, one thing that limits you in cinema, I guess, is the camera always has to occupy a position in physical space, whereas the novel can go into people's minds. I mean, that, that barrier doesn't exist. So, yeah. in fact, even if you take a cinematic approach, you can put it to good um, literary use. So yeah. Yeah. I basically got excited by what you, you call cubism, a, a way of fracturing a scene into multiple perspectives, multiple voices, and leaping about at, at high speed. Very, very conducive to um, insecurity as a writer, by the way, because you're not supposed to do it that way. Um, so right through the that's writing... That's a good reason to do it. Well, that's what I told myself. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was extremely worried all through the writing of the book that on the most basic narrative level, it might not be working, that it, what was exciting me might just be, you know, roadkill to a reader. <laughs> and, and did you get pushback from your editors over that, or, or were they, they just went, oh, masterpiece, let's put a cover on it, and... <laughs> <laughs> Neither. Um, I, did, I did sort of try it out on a couple of people along the way, and, and said, please, please, be honest with me, and just tell me, is this a disaster? And they, they were all sort of cautiously encouraging. But it was really only when you have the whole thing down um, and you can give it to somebody that, you know, a moment of reassurance came that it sort of holds together and makes sense. It certainly does. Well, there's a consistent um, line of criticism. If, you know, um, in masochistic moments, I look at my Amazon page and then... Oh, God, why do you do that? <laughs> my God. Oh. I'm only human, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is deeply masochistic, actually. Yes, it is. But, you know, those, those <laughs> sorts of transitions are still consistently baffling to a certain kind of reader. But I've decided to pay them no heed, as you can. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, you know, another way, I think, in which this novel is um, different is it's, it's a lot funnier than your previous work. And, um, you know, thinking of writers um, who've written for the stage and, and for uh, and fiction. I mean, one thinks, of course, of Beckett. And there's, there's some wonderfully Beckettian moments in here. I thought, for instance, there's a dialogue between Anton and a fellow soldier. The so soldier's called Private Pain. I mean, <laughs> you cannot get more Beckett than that. Um, is Beckett an important writer for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I discovered the Beckett trilogy in my 20s, and it, it was really like having the top of my head lifted off. I, I 
had never conceived that uh, writing could do that stuff. Um, you know, I, I aspire to walk in his footsteps, so I'm, I'm very glad that even a faint tremor of Beckett, Beckett showed through for me. <laughs> I thought there, were, there was more than a faint tremor, and um, the other writer I thought um, was a kind of, you know, sort of somewhere as a sort of goddess in the background, um, was Wolf, because there's a passage particularly near the start where, you know, they're all at one of the many funerals and the family's sitting in a row and the thoughts of one are being picked up and being transferred and changed in the mind of the person sitting next to them. I mean, is this the sort of right track? Is Wolf someone else who has...? It's, it's definitely the right track, but... Um... Sadly, um, and you know, this doesn't reflect well on me, I only discovered Wolf during the writing of this book. I, I was in conversation with a, with a friend and telling him what I was wrestling with. And he said, oh, but you must read Virginia Woolf. Um, so I did. And um, indeed, uh, she became one of the sort of presiding spirits of the, of the book. But almost too late to be, you know, a founding member of this club. She, <laughs> she gave me permission, as it were, to continue down the strange road that I was on. Mm -hmm. far, far more consciously, I think, um, William Faulkner was, was a, um, well, a foundation for the book. Um, I, think okay. of, I think of Wolf as being a genius with time and Faulkner as being a genius with voice. Mm -hmm. um, and voice very clearly is fundamental here. Um, but, you know, Virginia Woolf is present too. I mean, there's a sequence in the book where nobody's at home and all you're seeing are the changes in the house, the shadows moving through the room and the sunlight and the contracting and expanding woodwork and so on. And that's very Woolfian, I think. Yeah, absolutely, mm. to the lighthouse. Right. Yeah. So now that you've exposed me. As well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, beautifully transformed and made your own, I well, should thank you. add. Um, I am uh, going to open the conversation up to you in a minute, but I am um, going to um, just... So, so please start thinking of your questions for Damon. Um, but I want one last question, still thinking of writers. Um, I remember the first time you came to Sydney, and I said to you, what, you know, where would you like to go and what would you like to see, expecting the usual sort of answer of, you know, Bondi or, I don't know, you know, a, a ferry ride on the harbour or the opera house or something. And you said, I, I would really like to visit the house where Patrick White lived. You know, which is a really sort of beautiful and writerly request. Why is white important to you? Um, I was actually asked a version of this question earlier today and struggled to answer it, and I think I'm probably going to struggle to answer it now. He was a very, very big figure for me in my 20s, I guess, actually starting in my teens. Um, and I've returned to him many times over the years. I, I think he's a genius, um, but it's very hard to express why one thinks he's a genius because part of genius 
consists of you know lying beyond description. Um, the voice, the voice of Patrick White, the vision of him, the sort of um, you know what? It's sort of um, by definition eccentricity cannot help but be utterly original. It's mm -hmm. it's it's part of what you know, it's part of what makes it eccentric. And there's something profoundly eccentric about the way Patrick White sees the world. But he's given himself to that eccentricity so completely that that voice could not come from anywhere else. Um, something else of Patrick White's that I think has carried over into this book is his, um, his obsession with the physical. Yeah. So, you know, bodies with yeah. all their knobs, protuberances, and limitations <laughs> of, are very much part of the Patrick White universe. I mean, he offsets that. It's, 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 it's part of the genius. He offsets that with, you know, spiritual aspirations or a, a sense of spiritual life, and perhaps that element is lacking um, in my own work. But, but I'm definitely in this book very, very conscious of the fact that we navigate life in this particular physical vessel, and the physical vessel is not always uplifting or inspiring. No, well, you know, one thing I noticed was that, you know, you're always following your characters into the toilet, you know, it's just like, you know, <laughs> absolutely everything that you can do in a loo and more, and I thought that was very white, well, you he, know. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he died on the toilet, in fact. Yeah, and, in, you know, in, in, indeed, and, you know, he'd already written that, right, in this birth hunter in the Eye right, of the Right, exactly. Um, but it's a mystery to me, an enduring mystery, not a profound one, but an enduring mystery to me why more characters in books don't go to the toilet, because we, <laughs> I mean, we do it all the time. How come characters don't? Isn't this a daily activity? <laughs> Not in Australia. Oh, right. <laughs> well, South Africans do it a lot. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, there are there are fixed mics on each level. So um, any questions for Damon, please? Hello, and thank you for your beautiful book. Thank you. I just wanted to ask you about something you said early in the talk about the fact that Amor thinks she hears a promise made, and in fact, that promise of a house is never stated. So could you talk a little bit about the ambiguity at the heart of the novel of the promise itself, please? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. It's, it's a sort of a, um, an extension of what I was trying to articulate earlier about trying to push the novel closer to the way the real world works. One of the consolations, which I regard as mostly a false consolation that novels hold out, is that of certainty. You always know exactly what's at stake, what was said, you know, what matters. In the real world, there are far more questions than answers. So I wanted to build that uncertainty into what's absolutely central to the book. I mean, so much hangs on it, my plot included. But it's a little bit of an open question as to whether Amor actually heard what she thinks she heard. Everyone else resists it and says no. Um, that never happened. I never said that. So I'd like the reader to be uncertain too. 
Um, from a literary point of view, um, perhaps, again, that's a frustration for some of my Amazon readers, but uh, <laughs> for, for those who are prepared to follow me down the road, you know, towards the real world, it feels more authentic to me. Simple as that. Thanks. Thank you. And... Um, uh, thank you. Uh, fiction is very much a footprint of what life is related to it, and your earlier works are many uh, in that field. I'm kind of interested in the relationship of the core of the book, I haven't read it, but with similar histories in South Africa and Australia of indigenous land ownership, colonisation, separation of paths where South Africa ended up with an indigenous parliament, what do you see is the current state in South Africa of that notion of handing land back to indigenous people in a way that we still struggle here in Australia with that notion? Yeah, it's a very fraught question, and it, it's one of the reasons um, that I place this issue of the promise at the center of the book, and you know, the book has that as its title. Um, recently, um, a, a law was passed in South Africa that makes it um, possible to seize land without compensation. Um, so now, effectively, um, the state can take away land that people might think of as theirs and redistribute it. I don't expect that's about to happen on a, on a large scale, but it does point up how very, very central to South Africa this, this question is right now. It's very, very fraught. And in fact, a major political party has, has you know, uh, been using that as their the main plank on which they operate their agenda. But um, to a large extent, I, I see it as symbolic. Um, you know, land can stand in for a lot of things. It, it, can, it, it can symbolize a sense of belonging, a sense of a place in the world. And I think the fervor around land is really an expression of that lack in South Africa that so many people who feel they belong there, should have a place there, still don't. Um, and of course, an enormous amount of frustration at the fact that the people who do have the land ought not to be there. I mean, I'm including my, myself amongst them, although my sense of belonging is still very much tied up with South Africa. Um, I don't know where this issues going, very few South Africans do, but if the government ever did get serious about seizing land on a, on a large scale, it would change the game entirely in South Africa. I'm not, sure in, um, I'm not sure that it would be to South Africa's advantage, but I, you know, I'm, I'm an observer in that process more than a participant. One big difference, obviously, between Australia and South Africa is that it was the majority that were dispossessed. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not a case of, um, yeah, the, the power balance is very different. So it's a tiny minority that has held onto a vastly disproportionate set of assets and land is one of those. Thank you for that question. Up the back. Um, I'm wondering how this book, which is very critical of your country, uh, I found it very critical of the society there, how, it was, how it's perceived in South Africa from both the black community and the white community, and whether that differs in other countries, the perception of your book in other countries. 
I mean, I was anxious before the book came out because you're right, it's not kind to, um, well, it's not kind to white South Africans in particular. Um, and I wondered whether I was going to be at the receiving end of, um, you know, resentment, anger, and so on. That hasn't been the case, I have to say. Um, I've felt very supported, very understood by readers in South Africa. But South Africans, even white South Africans, I mean, I'm definitely not everybody, but, uh, you know, a lot of white South Africans, thoughtful white South Africans, are prepared to be self-critical. It's part of a, you know, um, a process that we're, we're going through. Um, the Afrikaans community in particular sort of worried me because I don't think they come out of it especially well, but uh, the book was enormously well supported. The um, Afrikaans publishing industry um, is far more supportive of its own than the English-speaking uh, counterpart. I don't know exactly why that is, but English-speaking South Africans very often wait for a, a book or a cultural experience to be validated in Europe before they can take it seriously back home, which I, I think is a leftover sort of colonial thing. Mm -hmm. um, there hasn't been that much commentary from the, the black community in South Africa, but there's certainly been no condemnation. And the people I have interacted with, the other black writers, seem to have understood the decisions I've taken. I think the perspective of the book and its you know, critical take on white South Africa is appreciated. But um, you know, I, might, I might be making too many assumptions in that regard. Sorry if that's an inadequate response, but it's as, as good as I can get. Um, is there someone waiting up there? Hi, good evening. Hello. Um, what interested me was um, the use of Rachel um, as a Jewish woman um, with this Afrikaans family, which in that generation and that time would have been quite um, an outrageous, almost a mixed marriage in a sense of the white community. Did you have an agenda in using Rachel as a Jewish uh, character? No. Um, you know, once I decided to use these four funerals, the next decision was, are all of these funerals under the umbrella of a single religion, which would probably be the case in most families. Um, but to avoid boring my readers, I thought I ought to vary the fare a little bit. But it's also, you know, um, there's also a serious intention behind that, because I, I was trying to represent the various religious beliefs that infuse white South Africa. That is to say, you know, for the most part, Judaism um, and variations of Christianity, and more recently, um, you know, various strains of New Age thinking. I mean, Cape Town's very like California these days. I was drawing, you know, in a, in a personal way on my own family background, to be honest. My, my father's Jewish, my mother, when she married my father, converted to Judaism and had me and my sister converted. I was then two years old. And you're correct, she uh, received a very strong pushback from members of her own family. I, I, I think um, at least one of them told her that he would never speak to her again if she went through with that. I mean, he didn't actually um, follow through on that either, fortunately. Um, and then when my mother divorced my father, she married um, an Afrikaans man with a Calvinist background, so we got sent off to Sunday school for a while. 
but my mother's true heart is, you know, much more with Eastern religions, and there was the sort of New Age thing. So, in a, in a certain sense, I was um, releasing some personal demonettes from my past. <laughs> uh, I'm so sorry. We have to leave it there. I'm getting stern wind-up signals. Um, please, anyone who wants to ask Damon more questions, please feel free to join the signing queue because he will be signing books. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. And please, thank Damon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.